0: Scripture reading is Mark 11:29 through 30. <clears throat> and Jesus answered them and said to them, "I will also ask you one question to answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? Answer me." Maybe seated. Keep your Bibles turned to Mark 11. We'll be in Mark 11 and Mark 12. Tonight, As a Christian, we want to make it to the top of the hill. And when I say top of the hill, I'm using the phrase top of the hill as a metaphor for heaven. We want to go to heaven. We want to make it there. We want to spend eternity with the Heavenly Father. And more than that, we want to help our friends and family get to the top of the hill. But how do we do that? How do we help our friends and family get to the top of the hill, to get to heaven? In other words, how do we become people of real influence? That's the question for tonight. And we begin with a fictional story about a, a little guy, about 120 pounds, sopping wet, who became a bus driver in New York City. And everything was going well on his first day until he pulled up to the bus stop and this big guy got on. I mean, this guy was huge. He could have played on the line for the Dallas Cowboys or he maybe even for the Arkansas Razorbacks. He walks up to that... Bus driver, that little shrimp of a guy, and he says, Big John, don't pay. And he proceeds to walk to the back of the bus and sits down. That same event happens every day that week. Big John would get on the bus and announce the fact that Big John don't pay. Well, that irritated that bus driver. So he decided that he was going to get ready. He was going to get psyched up. He was going to get pumped up. I mean, he took karate classes, judo classes. He took self-esteem classes. He took a uh, uh, membership in the gym. He did everything he could to bulk up. And finally, at the end of the summer, he thought he was ready. So that Monday morning, when he pulled up to that bus stop, And Big John steps on board his bus. And Big John says, Big John, don't pay. That bus driver, he just popped up and said, and why not? Big John said, Big John has bus pass. Okay. That poor bus driver. He went through all that trouble to get control of the situation. And it was all for nothing. But see, God has a better way to gain control and and real influence in people's lives. We don't have to pump up our self-esteem. We don't have to take bodybuilding courses. No, if we're going to overcome fear in order to be a godly influence in people's lives, we just have to learn what to fear and what to respect. In the New Testament, there was a group of religious leaders who prided themselves as being in charge. Or at least they thought in their mind they were in charge. If you ask them, hey, we're in control of the situation. But to any outside observer, they had no real influence in people's lives. Why? Because they feared... The wrong things. You see, as we studied this morning, Jesus had overturned the temple, or overturned the tables in the temple. And now these religious leaders are trying to regain control of the situation. Chapter 11, verse 27. Then they came again, Jesus and his apostles, to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, he's in the temple area, the chief priest, the scribes, and the elders, they came to him. Now this is the religious leaders. And they said to him, by what authority? You just tell us. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? In other words, hey, you tell us. Because we want to get that control back. We want to get that control back. We don't like you taking over. They think they are in control of this conversation. They're not even in control of this conversation. Notice verse 29. But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one question. Then answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. Jesus put them in a corner behind the eight ball and they had no way out. They reasoned among themselves saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people. Circle that phrase. They feared the people. For all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So they answered and said to Jesus, well, uh, 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 We don't know. And Jesus answered and said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The religious leadership, they feared the people's opinions. And so they advocated their power in order to influence them. Now, uh, go back to that verse 32. The Greek word for they feared in verse 32, it literally means they were put to flight. They're running away from their responsibilities. They're running away. The religious leaders were so concerned about maintaining control that they ran away from any control they might have had whatsoever. They wanted to be popular with the people because that kept them in their position. But that prevented them from having any real power over the people they were trying to influence. Instead, the people controlled them. My friends, if we want to be a positive influence in people's lives, if we want to help them get to the top of the hill, to get to heaven, then we cannot do what these religious leaders did. We cannot be afraid of what people think. My friends, don't fear people. Don't cower down before the opinions of men. Don't worry about people's reactions. Don't let them squeeze you into their mold if you want to be a godly influence in their lives. What is this? It's a picture of the current picture of the Colosseum in Rome. During the Roman Empire, they had buildings like this in many of their cities But this was the granddaddy. This was the one in Rome. They could easily pack eighty to 85,000 people inside the Colosseum for one of their gladiator games. Now, you remember the gladiator games? Those games were fought so that uh, one person would die and one person would be victor. For many years, they had forced Christians into the gladiator games. For many years, they had forced Christians to be uh, thrown to the lions and to the wild dogs. Now, question, when did they stop having the gladiator games? Now, you may think, well, they probably stopped it uh, with Constantine. You know, Constantine was the emperor in the 4th century that uh, accepted Christianity. That's when Rome, unquote, became, quote, unquote, a Christian empire. If you say, Constantine, you're wrong. The gladiator games did not stop in the 4th century. In fact, the gladiator games continued. The only difference was, instead of using Christians as the pawns, instead of throwing the Christians to the wild animals, they just took prisoners of war and forced them into the games. That continued through the 4th century and into the 5th century. So-called Christians were attending those games and cheering on the entertainment, watching people die. Those games ended with one man, Telemarchus. Ever heard that name? Telemarchus? Telemarchus uh, was traveling to Rome one day and he got uh, kind of packed in a crowd, a group, and they were all headed to, uh, to the Colosseum and lo and behold, he just kind of got swept along. He had never been to the Colosseum. He was down inside the Colosseum and looking around and he saw down there the first two gladiators to walk out and he saw what they were trying to do. They were trying to kill each other. He thought, I can't let that happen. I'm a believer in Jesus. This is wrong. He climbed over the railing onto the grounds of the Colosseum, and suddenly he was in between those two gladiators. He was begging them to stop. The crowd did not like it. The crowd wanted their entertainment. The crowd started to shout him down and started to to, uh, issue threats to him. Still, Telemarchus kept the gladiators apart until the crowd started stoning him. And he died there at the Colosseum. Three days later, the emperor, Honorius, he officially canceled the gladiator games, and they were no more. I tell that story for one reason. Telemachus was a powerful influence on the Roman Empire because he was not afraid. He was not afraid to stand up for what is right, even if people stoned him, and they did. He single-handedly stopped a centuries-old ungodly, violent tradition that was a terrible blight on the Roman Empire. I wonder, I wonder what would happen if we, as God's people today, had that kind of courage. Because we have a blight going on in our country, all around us. I'm talking about abortion. I'm talking about the rise of the acceptance of alternate lifestyles. The increase in... Ungodly activities, entertainment, pornography. What if we really stood up and let our voices be heard? What kind of people of influence would we be? If you want to be a godly influence on the world around you, then don't be afraid of what people will think or do. Don't fear people. Instead, Fear God. Be more afraid of what God thinks than what people think. Respect God's opinion more than anyone else and submit to Him. Do do what He, God, wants you to do, not what you think others want you to do. Live to please the Lord, not people. The religious leaders were more concerned about retaining control than they were about submitting to God. So Jesus tells a parable. Chapter 12, verse 1. Then He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it and dug a place for the wine vat and built a tower. And he leased, circle that word leased, he leased it to vine dressers, and went into the far country. Now at vintage time, the harvest is happening. He sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. Now that's what you do when you lease land. You know, you farm it, you you till it, you maintain it, and you then give part of the harvest back to the person who owns the land. Growing up, we had property, farmland, that we rented, that we leased. And part of the produce, part of the crop would go to us, and part of it would go to the owner. Here's the problem. And they took him, they took that servant, and beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. I'll explain that in just a moment. Again, he sent them another servant. And at Him they threw stones and wounded him in the head and sent him away, shamefully treated. Again, he sent another, and him they killed, and many others, beating some and killing some. Uh, This is the prophets of old that God had sent to his children, and they had mistreated those prophets. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved... This would be Jesus. He also sent him to them last, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. The history of God's people had created some, uh, in our opinion, some weird. customs and traditions, because of their nomadic lifestyle early in the Old Testament, because of the exile and they lost the land and then the return and and there was uh, some questions about ownership of the land, they had adopted some, um, as I said, some strange customs. One of those traditions, according to the traditions, If the owner of a land that had uh, leased out his property, if he wanted to retain legal rights to his property, to his land, he had to receive produce from the tenants, even if it was very limited. You see, if um, if they did not send back produce, if they did not send back part of the crop, they could lay claim to the land. This explains why the tenants refused to give him anything. They wanted to claim the vineyard for themselves. If they could show that the owner had not received any produce for that year, they could put in a claim for it. Then when the owner's son, when the owner's son came, the only heir, they thought they could get clear claim to the property if he were gone. That's why they killed him. To gain ownership of the property, but that was about the dumbest thing they could do. Look at verse 9. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. They realize that's what would happen if somebody did something like that to the owner of some property. He's not going to give up his property, especially when they have mistreated his servants and then, more importantly, had mistreated the son. In trying to gain control, they lose control. And the one they kill is the one who could have held it all together for them. Jesus was the answer. Verse 10. Have you not even read this scripture? Now this is Psalm, this is in Psalm chapter 118. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, as they would take their travel, their pilgrimage to Jerusalem, the people would sing the book of Psalms. And by tradition, as they were about to enter the city, they would sing Psalm chapter 118 because that's a psalm about the Messiah, about the coming Messiah. And they look forward to that coming Messiah. Now, they had the wrong perspective, they had the wrong idea about Messiah, but they still look forward to the coming Messiah. The quote the quote there is based on a story that the people knew very well. It was a story that came out during the building of Solomon's temple. Solomon did not want uh, workers to be there on the mount where they were building the temple. He didn't want the sound of workers. He thought that would be, uh, well, sacrilegious. Having all that sound and, and work being being done. So he ordered the people that were building his temple for God, he ordered them to do all the cutting of stone at a distance from the Holy Mount. So they would have to take exact measurements, precise measurements, and, and they would have to uh, make sure all the measurements were correct. They would cut the stone, and then they would then have to haul the cut stone to the site where they were building the temple. And as the builders were building, they had one stone that the cutters had cut that it just didn't seem to work. It didn't seem to work. So they kind of put it to the side and kind of forgot about it. And as they continued to build, they had a problem. There was a missing piece in building the temple. A very critical missing piece. It was the chief cornerstone. And then they remembered, hey, how about that stone that we had rejected? And they went and got that stone, and that was the stone that was made for the chief cornerstone. The people knew that story quite well, and, and that even you know, was a kind of hinted at in Psalm chapter 118. Who is the chief cornerstone? It's Jesus. You see, the chief cornerstone, that was the... Peace that held everything together. In Jesus is that peace that holds everything together. It's Jesus, even though He was rejected, like that original stone had been rejected. He is the foundation piece that that gives direction to the whole world. Later on in Acts chapter four, verse eleven, when Peter is defending the gospel before the Jewish leadership, he refers to Jesus as being that chief cornerstone. Jesus. Jesus is the sovereign Lord of the universe who deserves our highest respect and praise. But the religious leaders in his day was not about to give him that respect. Look at verse 12. And they sought to lay hands on him, but feared, once again, circle that word, feared. They feared the multitude, for they know that he had spoken the parable against them. So they left him and went away. There it is again. They were afraid of the people. They had not put their proper fear in place. They should fear and respect God, but they were not. They were fearing the people. They had beat His prophets of old, and they were getting ready to kill the Son. And as a result, they would lose, just like the vine dressers here in the the parable lost everything, they would lose everything in A.D. 70 when Rome rolled in with their army and destroyed the city. As I've said before, in trying to retain control, they lost control. But I believe they teach us a very important lesson for us today. If we want to have real influence in our world for good, if we want to help people to the top of the hill, then we cannot fear people. Instead, we must fear, honor, respect, and love God, we must must give up control to Him in order to maintain the control that He wants us to have. Unlike the religious leaders in Jesus' day, we must respect and obey Jesus as our King. Luke chapter 12, But I'll show you whom you should fear. Fear Him who, after He has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, now, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, we don't really like the word fear. Let me try to help you understand the concept here. I remember going to the Grand Canyon. And I remember standing there, and I was in such awe of what I was looking at. To think that God had created this. It was amazing to me, and I was in awe, and I respected a a God who, who, who could do something like that. At the same time, I was very careful because, see, every year at the Grand Canyon, four, five, or six or so people perish because they get too close to the edge and they end up tumbling off and it ends up killing them. So while I was in awe of what I was seeing, I respected what God had done. I had some fear that I didn't want to get too close. Jesus there in Luke 12 is saying we need to fear one that can destroy us completely. Can destroy us completely. Now in Philippians chapter 2, we don't work for our salvation, but we work out the salvation that God is working in us. In other words, what God is doing on the inside should show on the outside. Did you catch that? What God is doing on the inside should show on the outside. Otherwise, we are just opposing the work of God in us. The amazing thing is this. When we fear God, when we respect Him, when we love Him as we should, we fear nothing else. On the other hand, if we don't fear God, we fear everything else. Several years ago, an event happened in New York City. A young man named Buck was getting off the bus at his bus stop and walking home when he was approached by two guys. They didn't want to talk. They didn't want to uh, uh, have a conversation. They wanted to rob him. They said, give us your wallet. Give us your billfold. Buck said, no, I'm not going to do it. They started threatening him. Still, he would not do it. They even showed their, him their knives they had. He still said, I'm not going to do it. Finally, those two guys just walked away. When Buck finally got home and he told the story to his mom, his, his mom said, well, huh, weren't you scared? Weren't you afraid? And Buck replied, of course, what else would I be? Then his mother asked, well then, why didn't you give him them your wallet? Buck simply said, my bus pass was in my wallet. Huh. Like Big John had a bus pass. Friends are something more important than a bus pass. And that is life eternal. This is serious. We have friends and family that are dying each year outside the Lord. You know, as we gather on Tuesday to celebrate Lily Mae's life, doing the funeral of a Christian is easy. Billy, you know that. It's easy. Doing the funeral of a non-Christian, hey, it's hard, isn't it? It's tough. Because what can you say? Because you know their destiny. We need to be people of real influence. We need to help our friends and family get to the top of the hill. When God is the most important thing in our life, nothing else really matters. We can face ridicule. Now, they will make fun of us, yes. If we stand up against abortion, they're going to make fun of us. If if we stand up against uh, alternate lifestyles, they're going to make fun of us. If we stand up against ungodly entertainment, ungodly activities, yeah, they're going to ridicule us. We can face opposition, though, if we love God the way we should. We can face even death, even like Telemachus, while we boldly stand for what is right. That's what it's going to take to change our world. If you want to be a real influence for good in people's lives, then we cannot fear people. Instead, we must fear God, love God, respect God, honor God, and God alone. Let Jesus be the chief cornerstone of your life. He's the one who died for you and rose again. Let him give direction to your whole life. Then and only then can you help others find direction as well. Tonight, are you a Christian? Are you? When we are a Christian, that's when we become people of real influence. And that's when we help others to go with us to the top. When we are a real Christian. Now, I say real Christian because it's easy to say, hey, I'm a Christian. I could say, I'm a rocket scientist. I could say, I'm a doctor. I could say, I could say really anything. Saying it. Doesn't prove it. Are we real Christians? People of real influence? Are we ready and willing in the years to come? Because it's going to be harder. We're facing, I think, the hardest decade that I have ever seen. This decade that we're in right now. Are we ready to make a real difference in our community? Are you a Christian? Have you taken those steps to become a Christian? Notice these words. This is that easy plan that God has given us to believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. Each one of those verses, that's the words of Jesus. I've got one of those red-letter Bibles here. Those words are in red letters. I use those same verses. I could pick others, but I like those because that comes straight from Jesus. Now, as a Christian, are we a person of real influence? Can people see the difference that Jesus is making in our lives? Would Jesus be proud of your life? Would He say, well done, good and faithful servant. Would God look with favor on you? Or would He be just like He was on that day in the temple when He looked around at those religious leaders and saw how they were not what they should post to be. The church here stands ready to pray with you and for you. If you have a need to respond, please do so as we stand and sing for your encouragement.